0: Cause I was like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell them how excited I am because football season started, and I'm just so pumped up. And then my professors ruined it, so y'all don't get a happy Robert today. <laughs> they, uh, this week at the beginning of the week, they dropped two quizzes and an exam on Tuesday. So, uh, needless to say, it's been, it's been pretty hectic with schoolwork, but rewarding at the same time. And I'm glad to be here to be able to bring you the word tonight. Um, and I want to talk about. <coughs> A topic that I think about a lot because I hear about it a lot in the in the counseling room, and that's pride. <clears throat> um, yeah, can you not hear me? Well, I mean, I have a loud. I can use a big boy voice if you want me to. Big, big, do I need to use big boy voice? Okay, I'll use big boy voice. So, no, I'm just kidding. That's not that's that, that, that's stressed. I don't talk that deep. I don't have I don't have a voice like Caleb Brown. Um, I, I envy that voice sometimes. I'm just like, man, if I could just have a little bit deeper voice, I wouldn't hear. Thank you, ma'am, for calling. I'm not a ma'am, and I don't even sound like a ma'am. But that's that's what I get, I guess. Um. So while I'm while I'm explaining this topic, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. I don't know if for all of you that were here, last time I was here in the pulpit, uh, I covered Philippians chapter 1. Um, can you guys, can you all hear me now? Is that better? Okay, you, you, you know, I covered Philippians chapter 1 and we talked about some things and I'll do a brief overview on that too, but I, I see a lot of pride in the counseling room and, and it comes out in various different ways. And so I'll, I'll paint you guys kind of a picture of it. So pride is not being able to admit when you're wrong because somebody else wronged you, and and you're going to hold on to that instead of fix what you did. Pride ruins unity no matter what. Pride destroys marriages. Every time I'm in that counseling room, I, I see couples and their marriages obliterated by pride. Pride blinds us to our own sins and all we're able to do is focus on everybody else's sins or the sins committed against us or sin or pride can often blind us so much that we would think I don't even do anything wrong. I'm a good guy or a good woman. And sometimes in the counseling room, when I'm counseling people with pride issues or when I see pride coming out, which is every counseling session, every every counselee, I mean, and, and that's me, too. And I, I struggle with pride as well. It's there. It's one of the sins. It, I, I always think to myself, somebody could come here and say, hey, we want to get marriage counseling. And I, OK, we're going to start doing some marriage counseling. Tell me about yourself. Tell me what's going on. And then guess what? Pride and comfort rear their ugly heads. Two of the biggest idols slash sins that that I, I think that we deal with. And if you were to ask Brother Lewis, I'm sure that he could to back me up on that. But I tell people pride is a sickness that kills us. It's like if you want to compare it to something that we would know about, it's like AIDS. You don't die from AIDS, right? You die because you get a common cold and AIDS has ruined your immune system and it takes you out. Pride is the aids of our soul because it doesn't allow us to see the rest of the sins that we're going through. And I know that's kind of an ugly, like super, like, whoa. But, but it's the truth. It's that deeply rooted inside of us. Some of us, our prides are this big and it's ruining us. Some of us, our prides are this big and it's ruining us. If you guys talk to Emily about my pride, I hope she doesn't tell you how big mine really is because sometimes it gets out of control. That's just, that's my weakness at times is my pride. I think I'm right. And so I want to stand on it, right? I, all I can see is other people aren't doing what I want them to do. And so it's just an ugly, ugly thing. But, Praise God that we have scripture to paint us a picture of what it looks like to live in humility. And praise God even more that we had a person who walked this earth by the name of Jesus Christ who exemplified what humility was in every action that that man did on this planet. So in Philippians chapter two, I'm going to start in verse one and I'll read through verse 11. <clears throat> If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves." Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, of the things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So last time when when I was here, we talked about what it was like to be a worthy citizen, a courageous citizen, and a, wi- a willing citizen of the gospel, right? And so Paul, as he finishes up uh, in verse 30 of chapter 1, I almost wish that we had an old Bible with no verse numbers and no, uh, chapter numbers, because this, this goes right into it. And so what he's telling them in, in, in Philippi is to live in the gospel like that, you have to live in unity. So title of the message tonight is Unity in Humility. And to live in unity, you have to have humility. You can't do it in any other way. I love this church so much. Me and Emily talk about it often about how much unity there is here. And I know we all can disagree on some things. I get that. We're all humans. There's no way any of us are going to agree on every single thing. If we we did, it would be really boring. But the unity here keeps us together. It keeps the love Alive and burning, so to speak, right? And and it keeps it so that we care for one another, that we pray for one another, that we carry one another's burdens. There's 59 one another commands in the New Testament. And I I see this church doing them. I hope you guys see it too. I've never been a part of a church with this kind of unity in it. There's always a rift. There's always a little click over here or a little click over here. And I don't see that here. And so we're blessed to have that here. And so my hope tonight is to show you some things that will help us personally in our marriages, personally in our walk with Christ, and as collectively as corporately to be able to maintain and build on the unity that we already have here. So we see that unity comes from the gospel. And so if we look at verse 1, we'll see what we have in the gospel. And we have consolation, which is the same thing as saying we have exhortation from the gospel, do this, don't do that. We have admonition in the gospel. We have encouragement in Christ, right? And that's a big deal for all of us to be able to sit here and say, Christ encourages each and every one of us that have repented and believed on his name. And then we see that we have a comfort in love. That's experience in the love of Christ. And how do we have comfort because Christ loves us? It's, it's one thing to say, oh, well, Jesus loves you. But it's another thing to say Jesus loves you and he knows what you're going through because he was tempted to, but he didn't sin. Jesus knows what you're going through because he's a great high priest and he knows how to succor his people. And then we have a fellowship of the Spirit. I'm in Greek right now. I promise you, I had this sermon written before I I got Greek, but my favorite Greek word is koinonia. And I I don't, I don't like, I don't want to be a a preacher that just throws out Greek words and whatever, because it it does nobody any good, really. It's good to know the Greek. If you want to learn the Greek, I highly encourage it. Just get ready for your brain to be on fire. But this word, Koinonia, in, in, in the verse it says, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, it means if there's any community of God, it's a community with unity with God. Not not because we all know each other, and I know the primitive Baptist culture, everybody here is connected to the Greens somehow, right? <laughs> Every, or everybody's connected to the Sacrons, or to the Hunts, or to the... I don't, I don't even remember what Rebecca's maiden name is, but I feel like there's only like four families in the primitive Baptist world, right? But not that kind of community. Community in God. Community in Christ. A like-mindedness. And then also, because of the gospel, we have the bowels of mercy. We have a heart in which compassion resides. And we have a heart in which mercy resides for one another. We have a Savior who in His heart, compassion and mercy reside. We have to be of one accord and one mind. And to live this way, that means that we cannot live for ourselves as individuals, but instead we have to live for one another collectively. Right? And it starts in our homes. It starts with husbands loving your wives like Christ loved the church. It starts with wives submitting to your husband. It starts with children obeying your parents. And then that bleeds over into church, love one another, carry one another's burdens, serve one another, don't backbite one another, don't tear down one another, edify one another. And so in chapter, at the end of the chapter, uh, in chapter one, Paul he mentions the gospel five times, and so we we need to recall the supernatural experience that when we received the gospel. Remember that moment. Remember that moment. And I love how Brother Davis he always calls it this, and I, I've I've it's he said it so many times. It's how I speak of it now. When we came from darkness to light. Remember that moment, man. Hold on to that moment. That's not a one and done, y'all. That's not just a moment that you have to tuck back in your wallet on a piece of paper that says on September 9th, 2015, I surrendered to Jesus and only think about it when you're in the pulpit using it as an, you know, as a sermon illustration. No, that's an everyday thing. Wake up and know the gospel is for you every day. Do you know how to preach the gospel to yourself? That's a silly question, right? I read this book one time. I I swear to you, outside of the Bible, it's the, the most important, most influential book of my life. It's called Gospel Fluency. It's called Gospel Fluency. And that book taught me how to read the Gospel into every aspect of my life. When I'm struggling, it's the Gospel. When I'm happy, it's the gospel. When I'm angry and flying off the handle, it's the gospel. It's the gospel, brothers and sisters, every single time. That's what unifies us. That's why we have unity in this church, because we know the gospel. We're saved under the gospel. We live in the gospel. And so if you go to Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Philippians 4 verses 1 through 3. I'll read this really quick. And so what happens is there's these two women and they are there from the beginning when church, uh, when Paul goes and puts the church and plants the church in, in Philippi and they begin to have differences with one another and they're kind of leading two, two different groups. Okay. And so this is what he says. He says, therefore, my bl- uh, brethren, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Yodius and beseech Sinti that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Paul's saying, hey, look, these two are having a disagreement. I want you to help them. They're fellow laborers in the gospel. Listen to this word. This word is so awesome. Yoke fellow. I want to start calling everybody yoke fellow. I don't want to call anybody brother and sister anymore. I just want to call. If I start calling you yoke fellow, it's because I'm stoked about that word. I'm not familiar with the King James like y'all. Uh, I didn't grow up on it, and even as a young Christian, I, I was I uh, was reading the ESV and the NASB. But sometimes when I'm reading the King James, some of the words confuse me, like "what the heck," and then other words like crab my heart. Yoke fellow grabs my heart. That's like a military term, I feel like. I think that's what Marines should call each other for now. Yoke fellow, hey, what's going on? It's such a good word. A yoke fellow, right? Like fellow laborers, the community, the koinonia, the community of God help these sisters with this disagreement because I don't want them to disagree anymore. I don't want disunity to rear its ugly head. I want you to remain unified in the gospel. And I forgot to say this at the beginning, so I'm sorry. So point number one is replication of unity. Point number one is replication of unity. So in all of that that we just talked about, we need to replicate that. We need to show people compassion. We need to show people mercy. We need to remember we live in the gospel. So it's the gospel is the answer for our issues. Now that doesn't look like this, right? This is a, this is a hot topic amongst uh, the evangelicals at my school and the people who are going to preaching seminary and this, that, and the other thing. It's like, well, what are we going to do about racial tensions? Well, it's the gospel. Okay, it, it is the gospel, but what does that look like? It's not just, hey, Jesus died for your sins. Okay, I hope you don't think I'm racist anymore and then move about your business. No, it's the gospel is for you no matter what color your skin is. Christ died for those who would repent and believe, not caring what nationality they were. As a matter of fact, we know from Scripture that every nation, right, all peoples, not everybody, but all people groups. There is no exclusion. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. So the answer to the problem of racism, it's the gospel, y'all. But it's the gospel in practical application. It's not the gospel just by quoting a verse and you know, tapping the guy in the back and sending him on his way. What's the answer to your marital problems? It's the gospel. What's the answer to your financial crisis? It's the gospel. Point number two. Attributes of a hum- humble savior for meditation. In verses three to five, we see that humility is the key to living as one mind and one accord. We cannot view ourselves higher than others and think that we're going we're to be like Jesus. I promise you that right now. Listen, listen to what it says in verses 3 to 5. <clears throat> let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I have a quote here from C.S. Lewis, and he says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I love that quote, y'all. That's it right there. That's it in a nutshell. You don't have to think lowly of yourself. You don't have to think that you're trash or that you're worthless or any of those things. That doesn't mean you have humility. That means that you're actually prideful because now you're self-loathing, and self-loathing is one of the most prideful things we can do as humans, It's thinking about yourself less than when you think about other people. You think about other people more than you think about yourself. Do we do that? Is that something that we practice in our homes with our wives? Is that something that we practice with our children? Is it something that we practice here in our church, in our communities? Man, it would be really awesome if I could stand here and tell you that, that I live that way every time. That would probably be a super prideful statement to say, right? Because that's not how it goes. I'm not going to lie. There's times at home when I'm like, man, that last piece of pizza looks good. And that's, that's like a, that's like a really just weak example, right? Sometimes it looks like I don't care what Emily says. I'm right. And I'm not, I'm not letting go. I'm putting my foot down. That's the joke in our house when I say I put my foot down. By the way, that doesn't ever go really well for me, so. <laughs> yeah, don't don't say put my foot down to Sister Emily. She doesn't like that one. Do you think of yourself less so that you can think of other people more? Because I know a person and you know a person who thought of himself less so he could think of those who would be saved more. So we see this we see that in verse five it says let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus turn to first Peter chapter two and I'll read verses 20 to twenty five really quick and and this is the example that we have for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently patiently sorry but if when you do well and suffer for it you take it patiently and this is acceptable with God so he's saying what what good is it if you're already getting wrecked? For you to take it good, everybody knows that. If you, that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian, right? When, some, when when people are treating you bad, you take it like a champ. You turn the other cheek. But what happens when or when you're doing something wrong? I'm sorry. When you're doing something wrong and people are getting after you, it's expected, right? But what happens when you're doing something right and everybody's all over you, brothers and sisters? I, I'm telling you right now. I don't know what everybody's understanding of the end times is here, and I don't want to get in. (laughs) We could go all night on that, right? But things are not getting better in this world, let alone our country and our community. There is going to come a time when we will be persecuted for our belief system, for believing that Christ is the Messiah, for believing that his blood was shed for those who would believe, for believing in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. We will be persecuted. And I'm not going to stand here and ask you now, who's going to die for Jesus? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is there's going to come a time when it, so when you're doing the right thing and you're getting persecuted, what will your attitude be then? And he goes on to say in verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called. You were called into suffering because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. He also, who, him, did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him, God, that judgeth righteously. I'm going to stop there. When Christ was getting beat, his beard ripped out, the, the thorn of crowns pressed on his head, slapped in the face, spit on all the other miserable things that they could do to him. And to boot, his crucifixion, which is a horrible way to die, not once did anything negative come out of his mouth. He didn't even call down the heavens, which he could have. He's the son of God, right? But that would have defeated the purpose. Because that would have went against the will of the Father. And Jesus wasn't about that. But it says that he entrusted himself to God who judges rightly. That takes humility. When you're getting persecuted for doing the right things, will you entrust yourself to God who will judge those who persecute you for doing right rightly? That's a hard pill to swallow. How many people here just even at work... You know you're following the rules, you're you're walking the line for the standing operating procedures at work and the boss is still giving you grief. Well, I can tell you this what's right now. Robert's not an example of entrusting that situation into to God's hands and going to the cross. Robert's like, "Hey boss, do we need to move furniture or what?" You know, like this is getting ridiculous. You're like crushing me and I'm doing the right thing. What's going on? Because we think what? What's the first word that comes into our mind? That's not fair. Oh, I love it when people say that in the counseling room. Because I always push pause and I say, let me tell you about what's not fair. A man who came to this earth to do the will of his father, lived his life perfectly, died on the cross, the most horrible death you could imagine, and was separated from his father and took on your sins so that you could be seen as righteous. That's not fair. I love it when people say that's not fair to me. Love it. I eat it up. Man, I hope that didn't sound prideful actually, but I just like it when people say that. (laughs) Point number three. The humble Savior's self-humiliation in verses six through eight, we see that he was in the form of God and thought it not robbery, meaning thought it not something to hold on to or something to claim. Like he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna pull out the hold on, you can't crucify me? I'm God's son. Angels, let's do this, right? Like no, he he didn't he, he came down and he was gonna do the will of the Father no matter what, no matter how much it was gonna cost him. And then he was—he had no reputation. He was made into the form of a servant and made in the likeness of man. Man, what a humble guy. What a humble savior we have. And it was brought on. It was self-humiliation. He did that to be obedient to the Father, and then he made himself a servant. And just for the sake of time, I won't read all these, but we'll, we'll kind of talk through them. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, We see, I want to read this one. Um, It says, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Who was the guy that was the greatest among them? Jesus. And he was their servant. And what about John 13 verses 1 through 17? You guys know that story because we practice it here out of humility and out of um, love for one another. Jesus got down and washed their feet. When I was in Israel, I thought about that aspect of, of Jesus and we talked about it a little bit. And because even to this day, the streets that are paved over there and then the dirt roads, they're nasty, y'all. Like, I know we don't really, I don't think we think about that here because we, we drive a lot and we, we have sidewalks and you know what I mean? But these people still, e- even with their shoes covering all their feet are still trampling all through animal excrement and all this different stuff all over the ground. And so back then when those men's feet weren't really covered, think about Jesus taking off his robe and and making a loincloth and getting down on his hands and knees and washing these men's nasty feet, a job that was for Gentile servants, not even Jewish servants, Gentile servants. And then we also see that he became the propitiation, the payment for our sins, and that was through his death. That was through his death on the cross. In Hebrews 2.17, turn there. It says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And that word reconciliation, it's propitiation. It's to expiate or atone for guilt or sin, to make right with a payment. Swipe the card, accepted. And how do we know it was accepted? Because he was he was raised from the dead three days later. And that's all we needed. That's that's what we needed more than anything. Not anything that we can give ourselves. Not puffing up of ourselves. Not making more of ourselves and less of others. And even brothers and sisters, not making more of ourselves to make less of God. Because we do that too, don't we? We all have an idolatrous heart. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. You guys ever hear those people? And I, I've probably said this before, but man, you know, I just can't help it. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. Man, like it makes me hurt to hear that. Makes me hurt. It makes me hurt even more when I hear Christians tell me that. Well, I'm just following my heart, brother. I just, I just really feel like this is, I'm following my heart, brother, but this is where the Lord's leading me. No, the Lord's not leading you anywhere. You're following your heart and it's wicked and setting you up to fail. You're believing the lie from the the king of lies and he's going to get you. And lastly, number four, we see the humble, the humble Savior's exaltation. Praise God. Jesus' humiliation brought about his supreme exaltation. God made him. and sat him down on the throne next to him. And it says in the last part of Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Brothers and sisters, that's believers and non-believers alike. When Jesus returns from his throne to this earth to establish the new heaven and the new earth and for us to live in glory, the people who smote us and the people who didn't believe will bow a knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, And it will not be any other way. Their pride will be smashed. And I praise God for it. I praise God that he smashes my pride. I praise God that he has smashed your pride and continues to smash all of our prides. To bring us back to himself so that we can look to him and have hope in him. I'm gonna paint you a picture, and I'll give you a couple points for uh, application. In the Marine Corps, yes, another Marine Corps story. Sorry, guys, I did 20 years in the Marine Corps. That's not to brag. That's just how that, all my stories are going to be military related. God did a lot of time there. We did training before we went to Afghanistan. <clears throat> Sorry, did training before we went to Afghanistan, where we would play these games called Kims. Keep in mind. Keep in mind games. We would go up. They would have a blanket with a bunch of items on it. They would have them covered up. They would uncover it. You would look at it for 30 seconds and then they would cover it back up and then you would go on a three mile run. Then you would come back and they would say, write down every item to as much detail as you can. We got so good that we could get it all, but that took time. And the reason why we were doing training like that is so that we could start to see things with our eyes. We are training our eyes to notice everything. I promise this isn't to brag. Every time a lady gets a haircut in this church, I see it. Every time a hair color changes, I see it. If the pew moves two inches this way, I know it. My eyes see everything. Even though I have glasses, my eyeballs pretty much 90% of the time don't fail me. Okay. And so, and that's because of my training. I can see fish wire. I could see people from a distance where we used to be able to see where people were sitting down and putting in IDs. We could see their behind prints in the sand. Okay. Just crazy things that I didn't even think our eyes could do. But if you train yourself, you'll be surprised what you can do. And why do we do that? We had this saying called left of bang." What it was was if this is an IED and it makes a bang when you blow it up, we want to be on the left side of that because that means we are in control. Left of bang means I see the IED, we can take it out, we can blow it up ourselves, everything will be safe, and we can keep going on our mission. What do you think happens when you're right of bang? That means the bomb's gone off and chaos is ensuing, and now you're not proactive, you're reactive. So let me paint you this picture What if we were to try to stay left of pride? What if we were to try to stay left of pride so that we weren't right of pride and now we're reactive to our pride wrecking our marriage or saying hurtful things to our children or being degrading to the people that we work with or work for, thinking more of ourselves than we should to the detriment of other people, being right of pride, risks the unity that we love and hold so dear in this church but being left of pride you see it and what and how do we see it how do you train your spiritual eyes to see the pride you go to god's word and you read passages like philippians 2 1 through 11 you go to god's word and you read the book of james you go to god's word and you read proverbs You go to God's word and you look at our Savior's life from birth until his death and you see nothing but humility. That man was born in a manger in a place that was just gross. I can only imagine. We went to a place that they think it might be in Israel and it wasn't a pretty sight. This is about as tall as I could stand up in there. It's a cave. It was a cave. And they rented the caves out to people who didn't have money or couldn't find a place. He was born to lowly parents. Notice Jesus wasn't born to rich people. He didn't have privilege, right? (laughs) If that's a thing. He didn't have privilege even when he let everybody in the world know, I'm the Savior, I'm the Messiah, it's my time, when he rode into town, he didn't ride into town on a glorious war steed. No, he rode in on a donkey. He huh? Donkey. Like, that's embarrassing. Like, in my mind, I'm thinking, I remember this one time in Iraq, we tried to ride a donkey. It didn't go well. It bucked us off because he was scared. But Like it was just an ugly animal. It sounds atrocious. They stink. It's not glorious. It's not glamorous. But he rode in on a donkey because he was bringing peace. If he would have rode in on a horse, a horse would have represented that he was bringing war. He was humble. He didn't, he didn't try to get out of dying for our sins. He went and died for our sins in the most humiliating and painful way that we can imagine. So I know you guys have heard this from me before too for application. First Peter five, six says, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And in that we see that humility equals submission plus obedience plus trust and hope. Humility equals submission plus obedience and plus trust and hope. So, for take home, number one, submission like the Savior's is what we should imitate. What is submission? It's accepting or yielding to a superior force, God and the authority and the will of God. It's bowing a knee. It's surrendering our will to His will when we say, especially for the men in the room, if we were to say we are submitting to something, we're like, well, that's weak. That, that's what we feel. That, that, that's, a, that's a word that comes to my mind outside of submission to the Lord. If somebody was to say, well, hey, do you submit to your wife? I'd be like, no, I don't submit to my wife. And I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's just reverse, right? We don't, we don't hear that. But we submit to the Lord. In Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, the Pharisees come to Jesus and, he's, and they say, Hey, Jesus, what's the what, what are the two greatest commandments? What's the greatest commandment? What does he say? He says, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then he says, and then love others as you love yourself. On these, the law and the prophets, right? Hang. And what is he saying with the law and the prophets? The prophets is the Old Testament as a whole, and the laws are taking the Old Testament and smashing it down and compiling it into the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus took the Ten Commandments, and he broke those down into two commandments. Four of the Ten Commandments are are talking about loving God. Six of the Ten Commandments are talking about loving other people. If you love God, you will love other people. When you're loving other people, you will also love God because you're being obedient. In First John, we see that we show God that we love him when we are obedient. Notice that there wasn't three laws. We talked about this in my biblical counseling class this week, that the third law that we love, that people love to say, not we, but the people, you know, other people like to say is, well, you have to love yourself before you can love anybody else. It's not love God, love others, love yourself. No, it's love God, love others as you love yourself. And what does that mean? Well, Robert, you can't love others and love yourself. No, what it's saying is love others the way you want to love yourself. Not, not just love others oh here i guess if you need a coat here's a coat no love others take care of others the way you would take care of yourself if you were in need in second timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 I turn there this passage has been just as i've been preparing for this this passage is just burned in my soul and i'm guilty of of some of these things second timothy chapter 3 verse 1 through 4 This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Do you think we're living in that right now? Perilous times should come? I do. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Oh my goodness, that is what we live in right now. And brothers and sisters, notice where it all starts in verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. That's where it starts. It's the self-help movement. It's to love yourself before you can love everybody else. It's it's okay. If it makes you happy, you can do it. When I was in the military, as I was getting ready to leave active duty, I had a psychologist. Um, This was before I was saved. And... Uh, I praise God that she was a Christian. I didn't know it at the time because she couldn't openly talk about it, but I later learned when I became a Christian and 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 I talked to her about it, that she revealed to me that she was a Christian as well. But before that, she wouldn't... I, I never heard her say, well, if it makes you happy, go do it. Because what made me happy back then was drinking and being a bum and being angry and isolating. That's not how she treated me. But I have a friend who went to a psychologist on base military, and they told him, well, if having relations with multiple women makes you happy, then just do it. If it's getting you to stop being anxious and it's helping you with your depression, go ahead and do it. I'll talk to your wife. I'll help her understand. And even as a heathen in the darkness, I thought, oh my gosh, what? How? Like, if you don't believe in total depravity, man, that's a picture of it right there, right? That's, that's total depravity in a nutshell. It's not about you. It's never going to be about you. In the end, it's about Jesus. From Genesis 1.1, it was about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. Number two, obedience to the Father is not a request. It's a mandate. We need to comply with the commands and the directions given by God, and we need to submit to His authority. We need to be obedient. It's like your children, right? When you tell them to do something, they know that it's not a suggestion. It's not you just saying, if you want to. No, no, you're going to do this. Same thing. Our obedience to the Father is a mandate. We need to do it. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, we kind of get a good picture of, of what this might look like. <clears throat> and it says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these things, these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So we see that obedience is not just hearing but it's doing it. It's, it's not just knowing either it's doing. We all have a head knowledge of a bunch of things from scripture. Cause you know, everybody here that I've ever talked to has a very, very deep understanding of scripture, but you can't just know it and not do anything about it. What is that called? It's called hypocrisy or pharisaical. That's what the Pharisees were all about. That's how they lived their lives. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted everybody else to do what they didn't want to do. Do as I say, but not as I do, right? And so if we are to live obedient, it has to go past us knowing or reading or hearing, and it has to move into us doing. It has to move into action. Last point, number three. Trust and hope in the Savior is where our hearts should fixate. Trust and hope in the Savior is where our hearts should fixate. Trust is a firm belief in the reality and truth, abilities, and strengths of God. Do you believe that God is who He says He is in Scripture and that He will do what He says He will do in Scripture? Turn to Isaiah 26, 3-4. through four. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. And it says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting. I'm sorry, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. God will keep a person in perfect peace when our minds are fixated on him because we trust in him. Do you trust God enough to get in the back seat and let him drive and get you to your destination without trying to put your foot on the gas pedal, take control of the steering wheel, shift the gears, play with the radio, nothing. Now, don't hear me. That doesn't mean don't do something. I'm not saying let go and let God. That is unbiblical. I I really don't like that saying. But you can't be in control if you trust God to be in control because what you're doing in that moment is you're showing unbelief. Your pride is getting the best of you. And you're telling God, I got this. I can do it better than you. But don't worry, God. When, when, When it hits the fan and I can't figure it out. I'll come back. And we do, don't we? We always come back. Oh, Lord, it's not working. I I should have just come to you in the first place. Lord, help, help my unbelief. And then you get a little bit of comfort from praying to the Lord. And then what happens? You go back out there and try to do it again yourself. And it, it's, it's futile. It's insanity. And then there's hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. What do we have in the future? We have glory. We have life with Christ, even after life on earth. We have eternity. We have purchased righteousness with the blood of the Lamb that allows God to see us as righteous so that when He says, why should I let you in? We don't have to answer on ourselves because it's not about us. Father, you can let me in because your son died for me. His blood cleansed me. I did nothing. It's all on your son. I, I repented and believed after you broke my will to reject and to, re- to, 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 to stay away from you. It's not about us, and that's what we need. That's what we need to understand. It's never going to be about us. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as we live as worthy citizens, courageous citizens, and willing citizens of the gospel, that we will replicate the things we have because of salvation, that we will meditate on the attributes of our loving Savior, that we will realize the humiliation that the Savior went through in his crucifixion, and that we will realize also that he was exalted by God the Father, and he sits on the throne at the right hand of God, and he is reigning right now. We don't have to wait for him to take his throne. We don't have to try to figure out some big, huge schematic of when this, 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 and this is going to happen, plus this, that, and that's going to happen, and then maybe Jesus. No, Jesus is on his throne right now, brothers and sisters, and he's in control. Everything that's happening is because he is directing it. There is nothing out of his purview. And then I pray that we would imitate the submission of the Savior, that we, would, that we would show obedience to the commands that are a mandate, and that we would fixate our hearts on our Savior with all of our trust in him and all of our hope in him, and that we would never, ever, ever become so self-reliant that we would forget that. In in actuality, let me rephrase that, that we would never be self-reliant. That we would never think we could do this because we can't. We need our Savior. We need His example. We need His humility. And when we have His humility, then and only then will we have the unity that He has designed for brothers and sisters in Christ to live in. Then and only then will we experience true koinonia, Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and for his death and his resurrection. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for your mercy that that is poured out upon us each and every day, Lord. God, we know that we live in perilous times. We know that there are a lot of crazy, hard, and hurtful things that are happening. But Lord, I pray that we would stay fixated on you, that our trust and our hope would be in you, that we would rely on you, that we would be obedient to you. Lord, keep us humble. Smash our prides. Turn us to you so that we constantly look to you for all things. God, keep this church whole. Keep our our unity in place, Lord, which is only because of you and it will only remain because of you. Lord, I pray that we would remain obedient to your word, that we would uh, remain Mindful of the teaching that we receive from Brother Lewis. I also pray, Lord, that you would be with each person as they leave here tonight. Give them traveling mercies home, and Lord, allow for unity to dwell in our homes, in our church, and in our community, in our state. And may there be a revival in this nation where people would start to notice that Christians live differently because we have a Savior. Lord, we say this in his name. Amen.